Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Every generation, as they age, seems to think that when they were kids, that was when all the things made sense. Those were the good old days. I wonder if kids these days will think that, looking back on what they've had to deal with over the last few years. I also wonder if the good old days ever really existed in any generation, or do we just have selective memory? The more I dig into the past, the more I think that either we're all just ignoring the parts of the past that were less than stellar or less than wholesome, or we were just really naive as to what was really going on and we didn't care. We liked it that way. In the age of 24-hour media, social media, the internet where nothing dies and where nearly everything is searchable, keyboard warriors, manufactured outrage, and cancel culture, those days of innocence appear to be long gone. Now, on today's episode, first we're going to take pride in the classic America's pastime, and then we'll wrap up our look at what was going on behind the scenes back in the good old days. And as is our custom, good or not, goal update after the bumper. So, strap on your multicolored spikes and grab your hammer and sickle because Sunday, Monday, happy days. Tuesday, Wednesday, happy days. Thursday, Friday, happy days. The weekend comes my cycle hums. Ready to here we go. Well, it's the month formerly known as June. Currently known as Pride, you know, like the sin. Give it a little more time and we'll be able to call it the month of the Christian purge. Eventually, things keep going the way they're trending, eh, they'll get us all. If you say, said, implied, did, or thought about anything that doesn't fit the narrative, you know, the accepted worldview, oh, you'll have your turn thrust upon you. Now, don't worry, <laughs> I'll be going first. Pro, I'll get top bunk at camp. Pro, I'll get a solid jump on the re-education training over you. Con, more beatings. Now, I heard on a recent episode of the Glenn Beck Radio Show the total number of days per year that are declared to affirm some aspect of the beautifulness and superiority of the LGBTQQIA2 community. When they added up all the days, weeks, or months, it totaled just over 150 days per year that were dedicated to celebrating some aspect of the Alphabet Mafia. Now, maybe there's more, but the only observed days that I could find that had anything to do with Christianity was four. Four days. Just uh, just the four days. All related to either Easter or Christmas, in fact. Now, even if I'm off by a factor of, oh, I don't know, let's say ten, that's still only a quarter of the observances as a country celebrating sexual perversion, degeneracy, severe mental and spiritual sickness, and blatant, unrepentant sin. You know, the type of stuff that the pre-flood world was destroyed for, as well as Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, Zoar, many of the Ite civilizations, and others. But as always, the United States feels that they can do what's never worked anywhere ever before, better than has ever been done anywhere ever before, and not suffer any consequences whatsoever, like as been suffered literally everywhere, every time before. So, I actually wasn't going to do any sort of a segment on the entire Pride Month thing, as I, I mean, I just, as of the time I'm writing this up, we're only a third of the way through the month, and I just simply can't take it anymore. President Vegetable has just finished celebrating the gay child mutilation and grooming like has never been celebrated before, I would say completely and totally desecrating the White House and surrounding areas, and then he made a declaration that he was going to further protect what I'd argue is not only the most protected group of humans in the country currently, but also a group that's gone well past normalization of their perverse lifestyle to glorification of their choices, and is well on the way, if not already there, to deification, declaring them the superior beings on the planet and worthy of all our praise and worship. I think the last point of his declaration said something about heating the fiery furnace to seven times its normal temperature. That's unconfirmed at this time, though, just to be clear, I might be misinformed. So although I wasn't going to comment on this, as there are much better people than I to speak on it, well, a few things have hit uh, close to home, and I felt that I must 
comment, if only for my own sanity. Simply put, I'm enlisting you to be my shrink. I'm just going to lay back on the little chaise couch thingy, not so you can paint me like one of your French girls, nay, so as to assume the posture of psychological patient and unload my stress on you. Now, you may want to figure out what exactly GERD means and where or what your loins are, as I feel you maybe want to do that up to them. Back in the 90s, in my high school days, and the year I took off between high school and college, I used to hang out with my few close friends, many weeknights, most weekends, and for a good chunk of the year, we watched the National Basketball Association, the NBA. This was back in the good old days. The Jordan, Pippen, Rodman, Thomas, Ewing, Johnson, Bird, Wilkins, Barkley, Bowl, Bogues, the beginning of the Shaq and Kobe, Weber and Rose, and so many more era. Oh, there were just outstanding stars. I mean, there always was, but as, but as I got into college, the game started to turn into, you know, who could be the next Jordan. And the days of team play started to fade away with people cherry-picking, everyone acting like every drive should end in a dunk contest-style slamma-jamma. It seems like everyone was pretending to be playing a real-life version of NBA Jam, all looking to be the next person to hear, and boom goes the dynamite. Put simply, the game got boring. I rapidly decided that the NBA was no longer for me, so off it went. And in the years since, I've only turned a game on once or twice and was instantly bored by it, so I just flipped to literally anything else. And of course, these days, everything has gone woke, so my choices, uh, I believe, have been justified. Anyway, NBA, dead to me. That's okay, though. Plenty of sports to go around. The National Football League, for instance. The NFL. What's better than a bunch of massive guys smashing each other in the mouth, all in pursuit of a leather egg? Men who would insist on staying in, regardless of how many bones were visible, poking through the uniform. These were men that weren't affected by anything. More animal than man, really. This is my sport. These are my people. And then a few years back, the woke also crept in. The uh, kneeling by a quarterback that had one part of one good season, who was replaced by a nobody prior to being let go, not because of his skin color and huge afro, as he claims, but because he sucked. Now, I, I say that knowing that he's infinitely better than me at all things football and probably all things sport, anything, but as compared to his ilk, that he didn't measure up. So what did he do and what did others do? Well, they took a knee, not between plays, not during coaching, no, during the national anthem, the, uh, the protesting of our nation, the claim that all cops are racist pigs, the stated belief that the most diverse nation in the history of the world, where humans of all colors both genders and all socioeconomic statuses could ascend to whatever level they applied themselves, that this country was systematically racist. Blue lives didn't matter. All lives weren't important. White lives really should just be eliminated. Only black lives matter. The NFL pushed this narrative a handful of years ago, so I skipped the next season. I just didn't want to see it. Then I watched the season after that, and then the wokeness, the virtue signaling, it fired back up again. So I decided that I didn't need a smash mouth sport to tell me how evil I was because I had the audacity to be born not black or lick the boots, quite literally, of black people because of their blackness. I simply believe that MLK Jr. was right, that the content of character far outweighed the concentration of melanin in the skin. So I turned that off, and I haven't looked back since. Yeah, NFL, dead to me. And then there's the National Hockey League, the NHL. You have no idea how much I'd like to love hockey. But despite my growing up years in northern Wisconsin, it's just not my sport. NHL, not dead to me. I'm holding it in reserve. And what about Major League Soccer? Uh, you might ask. Yeah. No, just, just no. I was still okay, though. My first love, although some would argue it's not the American pastime anymore, it's still considered to be as American as apple pie. Yes, we're talking baseball. Major League Baseball, the MLB. They would stand strong. They would rescue this nation from its insanity. Right? I mean, surely the MLB would hold the line and just be a sport played by athletes placed in front of everyone, no matter what, to come and partake of in a non-threatening, neutral way. Right? <laughs> right? 
Now, yes, I know they've celebrated their Knights of Pride, and they have for some time. It's usually a rainbow event, a bastardized rainbow of only six colors. At least they didn't try to co-op the true rainbow of seven colors. You know, the Roy G. Biv that God gave us? No, they leave out the indigo. It's always been a bit obnoxious, but they celebrate all sorts of holidays, events, and causes, so... Okay, look, I'm not a fool. I don't believe that a non-Christian organization run by non-Christians is going to abide by my religious beliefs. I get it. All right, I do. But this year, oh, ooh, this year the MLB is running dangerously close to uh, dead to me. And admittedly, it's probably just my love for the game and my cubbies that keep me scratching and clawing to hold on to it. And then we get to mid-May, when plans for Pride Nights started to surface, and the grand champion of them all, the Los Angeles Dodgers. Now, unless you've been visiting a foreign planet, you know this story. Now, I'm not going to go into it deeply, but for instance, found on the LATimes.com headline, Dodgers apologize and invite sisters of perpetual indulgence to Pride Night. Yeah, so the geniuses that inhabit or infest the front office of the Dodgers decided that the best way to honor the mentally unstable, the spiritually dead, and sexual degenerates was to literally hand these blasphemous sick men the Community Hero Award. This group is made up as a bunch of males dressed as some sort of macabre aberration of Catholic nuns, complete with a traditional habit with white painted faces. Wouldn't that be white face? Or I, I guess that probably doesn't matter. Painted beards, a variety of rainbow makeup applied, pierced whatever, etc. They're essentially just a sexually perverse hate group, hell-bent and, and truly hell-bound, to mock and blaspheme Christianity. Regardless of your view of Catholicism, this is meant as a slap in the face of Christians and of Christ, and it should be viewed as such. So the Dodgers, in their infinite wisdom, decided that they'd invite these horrible, hateful individuals and literally honor them as heroes. Until Catholics and many others protested the idea, expressing their displeasure, their offense, their disgust at the thought of having these degenerates grace the field. So the Dodgers, showing their spine, backed down instantly and disinvited them. Until the Alphabet Mafia apparently placed the chopped-off penis of some boy in the bed of someone in the Dodgers' head office with a note telling him exactly what must be done. So the Dodgers, now clearly showing their spine made of the finest Dodger blue jello, reinvited these freaks, profusely apologizing for their irresponsible hatred of the best that humanity has to offer. Of course, these psychotic sickos gladly accepted the apology and said that they gratefully accept the award. <laughs> of course they would. Anywhere this ilk can normalize and glorify themselves in society, oh, they're going to take it. Now, Pride Night is June 16th, and as this podcast will very likely drop after that, when looking at the attendance numbers so far this year, there really hasn't been a significant change before or after the flip-flopping announcement, at least for home games. Of course, that has to do with the opponent as well, but let's see what the Pride Night attendance comes in at. My hope is that the same kind of Bud Light boycott of the Dodgers happen. I would hope that it was done permanently, not just for one game, but uh, I'll take what I can get. Maybe the Dodger fans are into degeneracy and blasphemy. I, I don't know. I know a handful of players, high-profile players, some Dodger players, have spoken out about this. But still the Dodgers are holding the line that they will honor this hate group. What makes me sad is that the Dodgers have always been my number two. When the Cubs are out, which happens most years, I'll root for the Dodgers. But no more. Sorry, L.A. Regardless of what happens, regardless of what you decide, the Dodgers... Yeah, dead to me. But as bad as this is, I, I think we have an even worse example, although on the surface it may not look as bad. Anthony Bass, a Toronto Blue Jays relief pitcher, had the audacity to repost a video, not his original video, just a repost of someone else's video, on his Instagram story. According to the story on the SportingNews.com headline, What Did Anthony Bass Post? Blue Jays pitcher apologizes for sharing anti-LGBTQIA plus Instagram video. Well, this video, quote, contained within it anti-LGBTQIA plus rhetoric, harmful stereotypes of the community, and described the LGBTQIA plus pride campaigns run by each business as evil and demonic. Huh. Evil and demonic. Who would say such a thing about such a wonderful society? Hmm. Well, I think it would behoove us to know what this video said. This video was made by Dude with Good News on Instagram. And I think you can figure out with a handle like that, you 
may want to hide your children because of the hate. So here we go. Here's the reason biblically why I believe Christians ought to be boycotting Target and Bud Light and any other corporation that's pushing the things they're pushing. I think a lot of people make this into a political issue or they say, oh, what's the big deal? If, you know, is it really going to make that big of a difference if I'm shopping there or not shopping there? Here's what the Bible says. It tells us what to do as Christians in Ephesians chapter five. It says this, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them for it is shameful to even talk of the things that they do in secret. So what does that mean to take no part? Well, what's Target do? It's a business. They, they make money. They sell things. And to take part in that is to take part in that God of mammon that they're serving and to take part in the darkness that they're purveying and getting out to the world and, and, and shoving into children's faces. And to take part in that is to give them your money. And I believe the Bible gives us radical precedent to say no. We are running from that and to instead, instead expose those things to, to, to shout it to all the people that have ears to hear that this is evil. This is demonic. We won't stand for it. We're not going to go to the stores anymore and we're not going to give them our money. We're going to let our voice be heard so that people can see the light and so that people can be pulled out of the darkness. <laughs> Whoa. Did you feel the hate? Oh yeah, me too. Now, why would anyone re-Instagram that video? I don't know the correct lingo here. And how in the world could 56,473 people... Hold on a second. 56,474 people heart that video. Now look, I don't know this guy. I don't know what else he posts. I don't know his theology. But uh, did anything you hear sound hateful? To call something evil that our faith calls evil, to call something demonic that our faith clearly shows is demonic, who are we as Christians if we're not able to stand for what we believe? Nowhere in there did this man state we should hate these people or commit violence against this community or the Target stores, unlike you know the Alphabet Mafia who have called in multiple bomb threats to various Targets for the store simply moving this evil demonic clothing, not removing it from the store, just just moving it to the back. No, this guy actually wants to rescue these lost, hellbound, sexually perverse people out of the darkness they're currently living in. How hateful. As Penn Gillette, the well-known atheist, half of the comedy magic duo act of Penn and Teller, said a number of years ago after a show, a man came up to him, complimented him on the show, then handed him a small New Testament and told him that he brought it for him, that he wanted Penn to have it. Gillette said this, quote, He was kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me and then gave me this Bible. I've always said, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there is a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? If I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point that I tackle you, and this is more important than that. This guy was a really good guy. He was polite, honest, and sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize and give me a Bible. Now, Penn is still an atheist and shows no signs of softening his position. That's for the Holy Spirit to work out through whatever means he so chooses, if that's what God has for him. But that doesn't change the fact that this dude with good news at least appears to be doing just this. He's telling people what the Bible says, doing it in love and not shying away from the truth. Well, Anthony Bass uh, re-grammed that video and apparently got lambasted for it as he soon took it back down. And then he spoke with management then made a statement to the press that looked mostly like a hostage video. I mean, you were waiting for him to give you a sign that he was speaking words against his will. It was cringy, and it was sad. He realized after making the post that this video was hurtful to the community, some of which are his friends and family. Really? Is that true, though? You just realized that, or, or you knew that and agree with the message, knowing that sometimes truth and love can hurt? Then he said he apologized to his teammates and the most cringy part of the video that he's using the Blue Jays resources to better educate himself and make better decisions moving forward. 
educate himself. Re-educate himself would be probably better stated. It wasn't that he had an opinion. It was that he had the wrong opinion. And, and you are free to believe whatever you want, as long as it's the approved narrative. Bass has been in the league since 2011, playing with seven teams total with two stints with the Blue Jays, pitching in 382 games over 12 seasons, including 2023, with an overall ERA of 3.91. Not terrible, not the best, but definitely not terrible. So far in 2023, Bass had pitched in 22 games with an ERA of 4.95. Worse, still not the worst by far for major leaguers, but definitely could be improved. Well, after what the Sporting News called the incident, Bass took the mound and was booed by some fans. And my guess is that he was booed by people that didn't like his repost and also by those that didn't like his mandated apology. Well, about 10 days after his totally genuine apology, the Blue Jays designated him for assignment. Basically, they fired him. Now, sure, someone could pick him up, but the Jays are done with him. The Bleacher Report stated that apparently the day before he was DFA'd, he was asked if he felt the video was hateful. He said, quote, I do not. That's why I posted it originally. When I look back at it, I can see how people would view it that way, and that's why I was apologetic. He said that deleting it was the right thing to do because it was too much of a distraction. Then he went on to say, quote, But I stand by my personal beliefs, and everyone is entitled to their beliefs, right? Also, I mean no harm toward any group of people. My focus from the get-go should have been doing my job and being accepting of everyone's decisions and views in life. Through this process, I've learned that. Moving forward, I will definitely know better than to post my personal beliefs on my social media platforms. Now, I, I truly feel sorry for this guy, but look, he's nearly a 36-year-old man He's apparently a Christian of some stripe, I don't know, nor do I care which, but, but when he asks for affirmation that everyone is entitled to their personal beliefs, well, Anthony, no. No, they're not. Only if their personal beliefs align with the accepted beliefs. For him to state that he can have his own beliefs, but he should be accepting of everyone's decisions and views, well, then you can't have your own beliefs, can you? Those two things can't live together at the same time. And what has he learned? Keep his hateful, religiously bigoted personal beliefs to himself. Don't even dare to post them on his personal social media platforms. There's a reason that I only have a few now past co-workers as friends on any of my social media accounts and why I have no indication of who I work for, nor do I give any information as to my employer on my personal pages because those pages are mine. And I'll say what I feel needs to be said. Anyway... This is a man approaching middle age, approaching the end of his career, if he hasn't been forced into it at this point already, that needs to figure out what he's going to believe and how he's going to stand. Either he believes the Bible or he doesn't. Either he's ashamed of Christ or he isn't. He's now seen what bucking the system does. Whether he apologized or not, no matter what he said, at the point that he reposted a video, oh, his fate was sealed. We are at a point in our history as a country where this kind of thing, you know, Christian convictions will not be tolerated. At any rate, Blue Jays dead to me. Although, to be fair, I never cared about the Jays anyway, so no skin off my nose. Moving on, and I think at this point we may just be making this a part one of two, because uh, I have a lot more to cover, but one more story will bring us to a nice pausing point. Matt Dermody is a pitcher for the Red Sox, or... Or was, we'll get to that. Dermody is a nearly 33-year-old man, actually born on the 4th of July, drafted two years after Bass in 2013, making his Major League debut in 2016. Another pitcher, but one that looks to have had a more rough career than Bass, with a lifetime ERA of 5.74 and a very spotty Major League presence, only 31 games since 2016, two-thirds of them in 2017. Ironically, with the Toronto Blue Jays. Well, he was traded from the Cubs to the Bo Sox for the 2023 season, where he pitched a game, four innings. He gave up three runs and took the loss in a 10-3 route, so clearly he wasn't their only problem. On the same day that Anthony Bass was DFA'd, well, well, so was Dermody. Now, you may say that he was let go because of his issues, but a fresh trade, one game, a new ball club, you'd think at worst they'd send him down to the minors to do some work, but, uh, but no. No, 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 DFA'd, for all intents and purposes, fired. 
According to an AP article in the opening paragraph, quote, Pitcher Matt Dermody was cut by the Boston Red Sox on Friday, a day after he made his first Major League start and said he regretted making a homophobic tweet two years ago. I mean, that took a fairly abrupt turn, didn't it? A homophobic tweet two years ago? <laughs> Color me skeptical. The article goes on to say, quote, Dermody made the social media post in 2021. It has since been deleted, but captured screenshots continue to circulate. The Red Sox said they were unaware of Dermody's tweet when he signed with the club in January. Once they learned of it, team officials met with Dermody, who went through mandatory anti-discrimination and harassment training in March. Afterward, Dermody expressed some remorse for his actions. I do regret the tweet in the sense that it came out hurtful and it hurt a lot of people, he said. That's the last thing I wanted to do is hurt people. I don't think he actually cried. A lot of people think I'm against a certain group of people or whatnot, but I'm for everybody making it to heaven. Here we go again. To quote another baseball legend, Yogi Berra, it's deja vu all over again. So what did this poor unfortunate soul tweet that was so hateful and hurtful? Well, again, hide the children. On June 26, 2021, so once again the month of pride, you know, like the sin, celebrating homosexuality and other forms of sexual perverseness, you know, like the sins, he tweeted, quote, hashtag pride month, homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will go to hell. This is not my opinion, but the hashtag truth read in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, may we all examine our hearts, ask Jesus to forgive us and repent of all our sins. I love you all in Christ Jesus. <laughs> my goodness, the absolute hate in this man. The words of Pendulette come to mind once again, quote, if you believe there is a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think it's not really worth telling them because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? Mr. Dermody had the audacity to speak the biblical truth. Homosexuals will go to hell. Of that, there is no doubt. He did it in love. He even stated that. His tweet was accurate, truthful, and loving. And let me add this. Homosexuals will go to hell. Every single one of them. Homosexuality is a sin. The Bible is clear. And to die an unrepentant sinner is to die unsaved, which means an eternity in hell. Now, is it fair that some people have these proclivities? Well, from a human standpoint, no. But it's not fair for man to have sinful lust to deal with, or alcoholics to have sinful drunkenness to deal with, or just fill in the blank with your own favorite sin. But who are we, as the clay formed into this vessel, to speak to the potter? Where do we think we have the right to tell the potter, you know, God, the creator, how he should have made us, how he messed up because he made us with a flaw? That's not our place to say it, unless you believe in a God not spoken of in the Bible. God made us exactly how we are supposed to be for his glory. And ultimately, either glory through the showing of mercy and granting of grace that leads to salvation— or glory in the sins of the wicked being justly punished for eternity. But Mr. Dermody is not allowed to state his belief. That's not what we do here. What he tweeted was not the accepted narrative to tweet. And it doesn't matter when. It could be the other day. It could be a couple years ago. It could be when you were 10. The alphabet mafia comes for everyone eventually. As for Dermody, well, I feel sorry for him like I do Bass. He's trying to walk the same line between faith and accepted narrative, and what they don't realize, or at least they didn't until now, is that their belief isn't important. Just keep it to yourself, and this line they're trying to walk doesn't actually exist. There's no line. Either you're fully on board or you're destroyed. Now, the article goes on to say that the Red Sox were not aware of the tweet when they signed him, but after they found out and after talking to him, I can only imagine what that conversation was like, they decided to keep him. Let's let the Red Sox chief baseball officer's words inform us of what went on. Quote, It's important to us that he had taken the tweet down and important why he had done it. I talked to him personally about that and what he told me was that it really came down to two things. One, he didn't realize that his words would be hurtful and he didn't want to hurt anybody. And when he realized that they were, he took the post down. He also understood that it's not the right use of his platform. He knows he made a mistake tweeting that. That's why he took it down. Obviously, that doesn't mean that we endorse anything he said or anything he believes. But the fact of the matter is, if we're committed to creating an inclusive environment, it's not right for us to police what people believe. 
we do need to expect that everybody here is going to be committed to creating an inclusive and safe environment and so understanding why he had taken the tweet down and that his words were hurtful and knowing that he doesn't want to hurt anybody and that he believes in a safe environment was important here. What a slimy douchebag. I'm sorry, but that's an accurate statement. They don't want to police anyone's beliefs, but, but they're going to do it anyway. They don't endorse what he believes, but they sure do endorse the beliefs of the Alphabet Mafia. And once again, can anyone say hostage video? I mean, did they jam the huge metal spikes in his knees and attach the electrodes during this conversation? Uh, you want to be inclusive, don't you? Yeah, you don't want to hurt anyone's feelers, do you? Their manager, Alex Cora, stated, quote, Obviously, as an organization, we made this decision and done a lot of stuff to educate our players on the subject. I don't know how many organizations do it with their employees, their players, as far as educating them about being inclusive and obviously accepting everyone in your clubhouse and your working environment. Obviously, not too many people agree with a tweet of Matt's. I'm not here to tell them what to say or to do. But one thing for sure, when you put this uniform on, what we want is for people to be inclusive. I think the clubhouse is a reflection of the world. We've got people from different race, different beliefs, not just religious beliefs, but also politics. I mean, if you're playing buzzword bingo, you dang near have a blackout by now with these guys. Wait, can I say black? So they don't want to tell him what to say or believe, but just know these hateful Christian beliefs aren't very well known or liked or whatever. Who cares? Just believe what you want, not that, and use your platform as you'd like. Not, not like that. And the Sox CEO, Sam Kennedy, had to weigh in because, you know, everyone is just falling all over themselves to go on record as agreeing with this satanic evil. Quote, What Matt posted in 2021 was hurtful. And we addressed this with him when we learned about it after he joined the Red Sox in 2023. We cannot dictate the religious beliefs or political views of our players and employees, but we do require they treat people in our organization and ballpark with respect and professionalism. Uh-huh. Well, Sammy boy, no, they absolutely dictate what the players and employees believe in both religion and politics. If you tell someone they can believe anything they want, but not that, you're literally dictating their beliefs. If you tell them they can vote for whoever they want, but if you don't vote Democrat, you ain't black, you're literally dictating the politics of an individual or group. And then, of course, with anyone that doesn't toe the correct line, the vocal horde finds something other than the sky to screech at, and they take to Twitter to speak about how much they hate him and want him to lose and cry and probably get injured and preferably die a horrible, painful death, you know, because of his hate, because of, because of his hate, his hate of telling them that he loves them, his such hate. And so as you could probably figure out by now, the Boston Red Sox, <laughs> dead to me. But as with the Jays, it's okay. The Sox were never really alive to me anyway. So no hair off my lower back. My friends, I'd love to say that this is only in the world of sports. I'd love for everyone to get to heaven, but the reality is that the rule maker has rules, but he made a way, a way that you need to do nothing but repent for your sinful ways, like the sins of sexual perversion, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. What we're seeing is a narrative being forced on everyone. What we're seeing is a clear defining of what is and isn't acceptable to believe in the world of politics and religion. But what we're being told isn't helpful. It isn't loving. It isn't even reflecting the reality of what's going on in this country. So let's end this part one here. In part two, we'll shift focus from the world of sports to the world of the rest of us. And we're going to look at some data that's rapidly coming to light. And then we'll try to figure out some way to wrap this thing up. We've finally made it. Welcome to part 17 of our look at the 45 communist goals for America. As read into the congressional record in 1963, all together now by a Democrat. As I've made this very clear, this is very important to remember because the Democrats today are not 
the Democrats from even 60 years ago. There are still a percentage of people in this country that dutifully vote Democrat because their daddy did and his daddy did. Because that's the party that cares about this country, so they think. Well, I could easily debate that argument from inception all the way to today, but the reality is whatever they once were, they are not the same today. In fact, as compared to 1963, a large percentage of the Democrat Party is in fact socialist, and a subset of them are full-blown communists, whether they say it or not. So this will be our final segment looking at these communist goals. Got a lot left to go. And that's Russian for come hell or high water. We're going to get through these last two today. So at the end of part 16, our score stood at 29.5 goals accomplished out of 43 for the Red Menace, or 68.6%. Now keep in mind that this is by my count. Some of these accomplished goals are obvious. Many allow some wiggle room. And keep in mind that I was okay with giving partial credit, thus the 29.5 goals accomplished. That said, let's hit these last two. They're kind of different as compared to the others. And this first one really isn't a goal for the United States directly. It's more of a goal for the world domination. In fact, both of them kind of are, which could, of course, have an adverse effect on the ability of the United States to, uh, you know, <laughs> exist. So goal number 43, quote, Overthrow all colonial governments before native populations are ready for self-government. <sighs> now, admittedly, I'm not 100% confident I've gone down the right road with this one. Let me just start there. I searched a variety of ways to try to find anyone saying anything about this goal, accomplished, not accomplished, what the heck it's even talking about, anything to help me, and nothing. There ain't nothing out there on this one. In fact, the best I could find on multiple sites, so I have no idea who first crafted this in-depth analysis, quote, the results of this successful campaign are increasingly obvious in the world today, end of quote. Oh, oh good, good. I even looked in W. Cleon Skousen's book, The Naked Communist, where this list was originally published in 1958, and I really didn't find much in there either. So I did some noodling which, you know, that can really go either way. And I did this noodling at about midnight on a Friday night, so take this for what it is. The colonial governments, the colonizers, they're generally thought of as the classical European countries, right? England or the UK, Spain, France, Portugal, and of course the United States is viewed as the worst of them all. Obviously not European, but you know what I'm saying. You could also throw in, per some view, smaller countries like the Netherlands and Belgium. So I thought, who were colonizing countries across the globe around the 1950s that the communists would have eyes on grabbing up countries as the colonizers released control, but before a local democracy-based government could be established? Now, I found a GIF, and yes, that's the correct way to pronounce that word, only commies say GIF, on a Wikipedia page that basically scrolled through a number of years of colonizers and their colonies on a color-coded world map. When it got to 1959, I snapped a screen grab so I could look at it more closely, and what I found was interesting. The main colonies in 1959 were located in Africa, heavily dominated by France and the UK. Africa also had a few colonies of Portugal, Netherlands, and Belgium, and a tiny corner of colonization with Guiana, Suriname, 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 Suriname right? And French Guiana in the top corner of South America. Okay, so then watching that GIF, we hit 1974, and nearly the entire continent of Africa has been uncolonized. By 2007, there are almost no countries considered colonies of other countries. Now, Russia is also on this map as a colonizing country, and I see no correlation that shows that the communists took over large swaths of Africa. And of course, we know that didn't happen, but my next thought was... What kind of government systems do these countries have? Well, when looking up the types of government systems, you can get a lot of answers, and there's a lot of shuffling around with the USSR and then the breakup of the USSR, etc., etc. So take this with a grain of salt, but looking at communismandcapitalism.weebly.com, they present a couple maps, one of which they label as communist countries, and they're apparently looking at this as some point after the breakup of the USSR, so at least somewhat more current. Well, they show a number of countries that were colonized previously 
from our previous map, some that were not colonized previously, and all showing that they are communist by government, including, drumroll, a large chunk of Africa. So, as stated, my premise is that the communists were looking at the growing push to reduce and eliminate the colonization of countries by the West, and as the so-called colonizers pulled their rule, control, and influence back, the communist plan was to infiltrate the country and inject a strong communist push to take over the government. This by no means would suggest that the communists expected these countries to be part of the USSR, just countries that are at least heavily socialist and preferably communist that would stand with the Soviet Union against the United States and other democratic-based Western countries. Now, we see that large chunks of socialism has even infiltrated Western nations, which includes the United States, and we know that a large number of other countries, many more than you or I likely know of, are heavily socialist or communist today. Assuming my assumption that I assumed assumptively is correct, then I'd agree with the scholarly conclusion previously drawn, quote, the results of this successful campaign are increasingly obvious in the world today, end of quote. And because of that, I'd have to give a full point to the communes on this one, bringing the total score to 30.5 out of 44. And finally, moving to the last and also the final communist goal for America, which is found at the end of the list, ironically, as the last items generally find themselves. Goal number 45, quote, repeal the Connolly Reservation so the United States cannot prevent the world court. <laughs> so I'm guessing that you mouth breathers out there have no idea what the Connolly Reservation is. Well, <sighs> Yeah, let me join you on that one. I, no idea. I've never heard of it either. So, like I do, I did some research. And as always, you can find the links in the notes. Apparently, in 1945, the United Nations established the International Court of Justice. Every member nation in the UN were automatically members of the court and still are. It's changed some, but still are. However, the court has no jurisdiction unless the nation volunteers to accept its jurisdiction. This sounds to be, I don't know, approximately as useful as the UN is in general. If the nation volunteers to be under the jurisdiction of the court, then the court can preside over interpretations of treaties, questions regarding international law, breaches of international obligations, and reparations if found in violation of any of these things. Now, at the time, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee recommended that the United States should submit to compulsory adherence to this international court jurisdiction, with one caveat. It wouldn't apply to anything that was a domestic issue inside the United States. Well, in comes Senator Tom Connolly of Texas. He was the chairman of the committee and proposed one more amendment to be known as the Connolly Reservation or the Connolly Amendment that added a caveat to the caveat, namely that the United States alone would determine if an issue was within the domestic jurisdiction of the United States. So unless the U.S. decided an issue was able to go to the international court, it couldn't be compelled to the jurisdiction of the international court. Well, the committee rejected this reservation initially, stating that it uh, kind of defeats the purpose of the court if the U.S. can just decide the issue can't go to the court on their own. Well, after debate and a vote, the Connolly Reservation or Amendment was actually adopted. Now, shortly after, Mexico, Liberia, Pakistan, Sudan, South Africa, France, Great Britain, and India also jumped on board with their own versions of the same sort of thing. But by 1964, the date of the document that I'm pulling this info from, France, Great Britain, and India had repealed their reservation, thus submitting to the decision of the International Court. Now, it appears that the Connolly Reservation was only invoked one time, at least by 1964, and it also appears that Russia brought five cases against the U.S. by 1964 since the Connolly Amendment was put in place. The U.S. didn't invoke the Connolly Reservation against Russia, but they also didn't submit to jurisdiction of the court in those cases. So, again, like pretty much everything the U.N. does, this court seems mostly just useless. Now, fast forward. The International Court of Justice is now the World Court, if I'm correct. I'm, that's what it appears it's transitioned into. And from what I can find, the U.S. rescinded compulsory jurisdiction to the court and now has full discretion as to what it will and won't allow to be presided on by the court. So why would Russia want this reservation repealed back in the late 50s, early 60s? Well, simply put, 
By repealing this amendment, it would essentially give jurisdiction to the international court over domestic issues in the United States. Democrats are huge proponents to a global or one-world government, and thus are big proponents for a world court. In 1959, Minnesota Senator Hubert Humphrey introduced Senate Resolution 94 to repeal the Connolly Reservation, because of course he did. The problem is that the international court isn't bound by our laws or our constitution, so we'd basically be a sovereign nation in theory, but in reality we'd just be a cog in the global machine. And this is why Russia had an interest in getting this amendment repealed. As a member of the UN, getting China into the UN, if they could get communist governments installed in various nations, if the US was subject to the international court, the communists could mire us down in constant legal battles and potentially drain us through litigation or reparations and neuter us by overwhelming the court with an ever-increasing number of communist nations presiding. Now, I can't find much on the Connolly Reservation after the mid-1960s. I don't think it was repealed, and as far as I know, the U.S. has never really ceded jurisdiction to the U.N. World Court. That said, the Democrats, Socialists, and Communists in our government have consistently advocated since the inception of the U.N. and really the League of Nations to just hand over control. This is really the quickest way to nullify the Constitution and just twist us into another third world socialist nation. Through COVID, we saw calls for handing over vaccine mandates, lockdown mandates, etc. to the UN or to the WHO, pretty much anyone that could tell us what to do. Thankfully, that didn't happen. Although, to be honest, the UN peacekeepers are useless and those of us on the right would pretty much just tell them to pound sand if they don't like it. You know, come here and try to tell us what to do. We dare you. Then just the other day, Biden, or at least his Marxist horde of handlers, uh, it pointed Justin Hansford, a black Howard University law professor, to speak to the UN Permanent Forum on People of African Descent, where he asked that the UN set up a reparations tribunal and enforce some sort of justice to black Americans for slavery. Now, we aren't going to get into slavery and the alleged permanent damage it did by allowing you know, generations of black people for who knows how many generations after slavery's end to live in the most diverse, most inclusive, most free with the most opportunity, best country in the world. We don't need to get into that. But again, this fool just wants to allow a global organization with a history of hating the United States to just, uh, you know, come on in and shred the Constitution and then burn the shards and then pee on the ashes. And to me, I'd say, uh, how about no? So back to our goal. I don't know if the Connolly Amendment was ever repealed. I can't find it. But I do know that the World Court exists. However, Russia has not been able to embroil us in constant litigation, and we have not ceded our sovereignty to a global governing body. Yet. So, I think I'd have to say that the communists did not accomplish this goal. And with that, we sit at a final score of 30.5 equivalent goals achieved out of 45, or about 68% of the communist goals for the United States realized, and I've said this before and I'll say it again, that seems suboptimal. So now as I wrap up our look at the 45 communist goals for America, as read into the congressional record in 1963 by a Democrat, I say this, God is sovereign. In not only our apparent slide as a country into communism, but also in my writing of the script for this podcast segment. See, I'm wrapping up this segment now on a Sunday afternoon, June 18th to be exact. The sermon that we had in church today was the first in a short expositional series into the book of Habakkuk, or Habakkuk. The book starts with the prophet expressing the burden that's been imposed on him and goes on to ask God, why? Why hasn't he answered prayers? Why is he sitting seemingly idly by as the nation of Israel is going through so much turmoil with their wicked kings and the desecration of the temple, etc.? And Yahweh replies, quote, See among the nations, and look, be also astonished, be astounded, because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if it was recounted to you. Now, one of the main points in Pastor Tim's message, and I'm linking the sermon video in the notes, the message starts about 55 minutes into the video stream, was that, quote, we people react in time and space. God governs based on the infinite and the eternal. 
See, we, or I, see the evil that's drifting into our country and our culture. I know where it's coming from, from a human standpoint. I understand where it originates on the spiritual plane. And yet we, I, look at this country, arguably the greatest country in general, the greatest fighter for freedom that this world has ever known, and see the absolute destruction coming our way. And I ask God, why? How long will you sit there and do nothing? But God works in the eternal and the infinite. He is singularly sovereign over all things. At the point of Habakkuk writing his prophecy, the Israelites were going to be put under oppression and brought into captivity by the Chaldeans, the the Babylonians. It was going to get worse, much worse, before it got better. And it was all being done by the sovereign hand of God for his eternal purpose, for his ultimate glory. Now, I don't know where we are as a country, as a nation, in the eternal plan of God. I know I don't like where I see us, and except for some sparks of hope that have been popping up lately, I don't like the trajectory I see. So I don't know if God's plan is to turn us back around from being two-thirds majority communist back to majority capitalist, from an increasingly atheistic nation back to a Christian nation, or if God's plan is to put us under communist oppression, or worse, to essentially wipe us out. I do know this, though. We, as Americans need to fight for our country. And as of now, that fight must take place in our gathering of knowledge personally, in our communications with others, and our actions at the ballot box. Don't get caught up in the vengeance and retaliation effect. This is the one issue I have with Trump, and I know I'll probably make some people angry here. I don't dislike Trump, but he is quite obviously focused on avenging himself for the wrongs that have been done to him. And I totally get that. And honestly, I would likely be in that same mindset if I were him, and I would probably be handling it much worse than he is. But if he wants to be president again, he must focus less on himself, less on his name and reputation, and more on the country as a whole. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. The exact right measure of vengeance is already predetermined. It's been measured out. The recipients are marked, and the timing is set. We don't need to worry about that. And that brings us to our other fight, our time and space fight is what I just mentioned, but the infinite and eternal fight that requires us to be on our knees in our Bibles, being ready to give an answer, telling others about the gospel as we have opportunity, that's our other fight, our biggest fight. The purpose for our country may or may not be over. That's also predetermined. But our battle as Christians is never over. So let me encourage you to keep your focus, stand tall, Be ever vigilant in the spiritual battle for this nation. And as you're doing so, battle for this nation in the here and now as well. The loss of the United States of America will have a typhoon-level ripple effect across the globe. The battle for the existence, the heart, and the soul of this nation is one worth fighting for. We watched, were so gallant.
Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. Well, update 22. Uh, Only a month away from half a year's worth of updates, which seems impossible, but, uh, but here we are. So this is normally what happens with me in the summer, with vacations and stuff that I got to get done outside, etc., etc. I'll typically fall apart on my diet. You know how people strive to get into some sort of summer swimsuit shape? I generally run on an opposite cycle. I'll fall apart in the summer and then fire back up the diet and the exercise in the fall. So I guess I can get into some sort of middle of winter snowsuit shape, I guess. I'd, I don't know. I'm, I'm all messed up. Anyway... I weighed in this Tuesday at 185.4 pounds, which is a 0.4 pound gain from uh, last Tuesday, but there are likely some extenuating popcorn-related circumstances that contributed to that. That said, the diet and exercise was pretty much a wash the week before, so I mean, who knows, right? I mean, it wasn't the worst week, but it definitely was not the week that it needed to be. Now, truth be told, I'm still down 29 pounds from where I started, but I'm four pounds behind my goal at this point, sitting at about 1.3 pounds lost per week. I really need to have a couple good weeks before about 10 days of poor choices and then back at it again to try and get to my goal weight sometime by fall. We'll see. I don't know. Motivation is kind of flat right now and the guilt is rising. Trying to ignore the guilt, feeling guilty by doing that. And surely I'm not the only one that struggles with this stuff. Anyway, This one stays red, solid, solid red, and uh, let's shoot for positive progress next week. (laughs) I can do it. I just need to enact willpower, especially in the evenings. Now on to pages red. This is still going gangbusters, which, which is nice to have a win. Over the last week, I read 338 pages, mostly in my light reading book, but I did get a fair number of pages read in my deep thinking book as well. And I read a short pocket guide on human missing links put out. It was either by ICR or Answers in Genesis. I, I can't remember. A good Christian guy at work <sighs> a week before he retired sadly, asked if I would like to read this guide. So I threw it in the mix really quick, pounded through it so I could read it and get it back to him before he retired. Um, Actually, really good. I've I've read a lot of this stuff before, um, but it was really good. I would recommend it. Uh, In one chapter, Georgia Purdom talks about the truth behind the twisted claim, or might call it a lie, that there's only 1% difference between the DNA of apes and man. And then in another chapter, a guy who I can't remember the name of went into fairly deep detail about Neanderthal man. Um, A lot of stuff I hadn't heard before. So really solid info. And the rest of the guide was really good as well. Just those were the two chapters that just stood out to me. Anyway, this goal is obviously a solid green with a total of now 4,325 pages read in 18 books so far this year. And that, by eight pages, eclipses my 2021 total of 4,317 pages in 19 books. So with that target wiped out, I now set my sights on my 2019 total of 5,380 pages in 25 books. So unless something really collapses, that goal shouldn't be a problem. It's just a matter of time. Moving on to Bible reading, this one is back on track, moving at the correct pace again, a slight uptick in percentage, now just over 150% of my goal pace, still on track to finish by the end of June. I've just entered Revelation with regard to the New Testament, and I've just finished up Hosea in the Old Testament. Seems crazy how much Old Testament is left to read in only 20 days of the daily Bible readings. But a lot of single chapter or books with only a few short chapters left to go, so it works out. So this one is back to a solid green. And finally, devotions. Same story, different week. Moving nicely through Exodus, Moses just got done with his song. And now after that interlude, we'll have to see what wacky hijinks those Jewish wanderers get into next. (laughs) Yeah, not one of you would be surprised if you heard the crack of a lightning bolt and then silence at this point, would you?
Anyway, devotion stays a solid green as well. So the reality is a lot of positive this year as compared to the last few. But I'll be honest, the weight thing is the thing that's really frustrating. I, I know that I'm not the only one here. See, I would like to eat whatever I want whenever I want and not have to worry about it. But I can't. Then I'd like to like working out. But I don't like it. I've never liked it. And if I'm being completely honest, I know this feeling of being on the tipping point where I either say, screw it, and then look like Cookie Monster just shoveling food in my face, or let's do this and temporarily deal with hunger and sweat and tiredness for the greater good. And it must be, let's do this. There's nothing gained by failure except learning that failure isn't fun. That lesson should only have to be learned once. Regarding weight, I've learned that lesson a few times in my post-college adult life. But if I keep repeating it, did I really learn it? Uh, no, the answer is no, I didn't. So I need to make sure I don't repeat the same failure. So that said, next week will be better. It must be better. It better be better or so help me that I'm not sure how to finish that threat. But it will be a step in the right direction. Mark my words. Now, I need to go get some ice cream and pay to get the strength to exercise. Okay, bye. <laughs>